Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Welcome, everyone, to our May episode. Spring is here. Uh, this month, we're featuring an interview that Eva did with Dr. Carl Friedrich Flach on the 10th of March, and hope you enjoy it. Hey there, everyone. Today we have with us Carl Friedrich Flack from the University in Gothenburg and also part of the CARE Center, which is a center a bit similar to our UHC Center. Carl, can you please introduce yourself to our audience and tell us a little bit of where you are right now? Yes. Uh, and first of all, thank you for inviting me here today. And as you said, my name is Carl Friedrich Flack, and I have a background as molecular biologist. I have a PhD in medical microbiology. And currently, I am an associate professor at the University of Gothenburg, uh, Department of Infectious Diseases. And as you also mentioned there, I'm also a member of CARE, our Center for Antibiotic Resistance Research that we have at the University of Gothenburg. At CARE, we have divided our research into six different research themes, where I am the theme leader for the surveillance theme. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, one of the reasons that I really wanted to bring you here and talk to you is because many times here in the podcast, we have talked about the concept of One Health within AMR, when we kind of bring together the human side, the environmental side, the animal side. And sometimes for people there's a, this recurring question of how does the environment comes into play here, right? Because people see the effects of AMR in, in the clinics, in humans that have infections that cannot be treated or in animals that have infections that cannot be treated. So sometimes we get lost in the middle in translation of how these things come together. And you in particular work in a very interesting piece of the environment, as I have read, which is the sewage and the waste waters, which is very interesting. Um, can you tell us how did you get to work in this particular area of AMR? I have to thank Professor Joachim Larsson for that, I guess, because he was the one who recruited me back in 2011. And since then, I've been conducting research in this area that we call the environmental dimensions of antibiotic resistance, where I have particularly focused on sewage and wastewater. Can you, for the people out there that are not very familiar with how all this comes into the bigger picture of AMR, how is the wastewater, the sewage and the environment related to the whole AMR picture? I would say, as you mentioned here about the One Health concept, is that the, everything is connected and interconnected, so that we have the humans, we have the animals, but we also have then the broader external environment. And we know that in all these three sectors, we can find resistant bacteria, we can find antibiotic resistance genes, and we know that there is a flow and movement of bacteria and genes between these three sectors. And as you say, maybe it's more appreciated for the animal side than the human side, but it's getting more and more appreciated that the environment also plays a role here. 
I guess the environment is what contains us all, right? We are all in contact with the environment one way or another. Uh, I'm very curious about how do you go about uh, studying wastewaters and sewage uh, when it comes to look for antibiotic-resistant bacteria and antibiotic-resistant genes? Yeah, we are doing several different projects related to this. So if I can just give a little brief background, maybe, and that is that, first of all, I would like to highlight that the environment can play an important role in several different aspects of antibiotic resistance. Firstly, the environment can serve as a transmission route for already resistant bacteria. As, as I mentioned, both between humans, but also between animals and humans. And secondly, the environment can serve as an arena for the emergence and development of new resistant bacteria. And also then, in addition to this, in addition to its role in transmission and evolution of resistant bacteria, the environment, and I would say then in particular, sewage and wastewater can also be used for surveillance purposes. We have been running a project for a few years now where the aim is to develop and evaluate sewage-based monitoring system, which can be used particularly the surveillance of antibiotic-resistant bacteria in human populations. Mm -hmm. So we use basically then sewage samples to get sort of, to give a reflection of what's going on in humans. Because since a single sample of sewage can contain bacteria from thousands of individuals, the analysis of such samples can be, a, we think, a resource-efficient way to survey the prevalence of resistant bacteria in populations contributing to the sewage. Mm -hmm. And in... Uh, a few recent studies, we have seen that resistance rates in E. coli isolated from sewage samples correlate with resistance rates in E. coli causing infections. And this has been seen both in a local study here in, in Gothenburg, Sweden, and also in a study where we included samples from 10 different European countries. Mm -hmm. And this tells us that it could be possible to predict resistance in the clinic from sewage analysis. Mm -hmm. So do you see this kind of system as something that can be routinely implemented in order to guide antibiotic treatment and antibiotic use in different places? That is our long-term goal. And we also think, I should say that, uh, I would think that the greatest value of such sewage monitoring could be in parts of the world where surveillance today is very limited, mainly due to limited resources. So that is also why we very recently launched a project where the aim is to develop our sewage monitoring system further and evaluate it in three different low and middle income countries in sub-Saharan Africa to see if it's possible also there to predict clinical resistance from sewage analysis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask if there is some apparent differences when it comes to the composition or the markers that one can find in the sewage water as a monitoring and surveillance system in different parts of the world. I would not say that the markers are different. It's the same kind of things that you analyze. But of course, for example, if you look at one specific marker, it could be resistance levels in E. coli bacteria. Yet for sure, then it looks different in different parts of the world because that is what we see because it seems to be a reflection of what's going on in the clinic. Mm -hmm. So if we go to a country where, where we have a lot of problems with resistant bacteria, then we also tend to see higher levels of resistant, in this case, and we have studied E. coli a lot, then we see higher levels of resistant E. coli 
in the sewage sample as well. But I would say it's the same type of markers. It's not that completely different that we study in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. in, that, in that way, it's universal. Interesting. It comes to my mind to, to ask and think about in practical terms, I imagine, and I think we all imagine, sewage is a very messy environment, right? It's basically all the trash that we have from the households, from the cities, from the countryside, also, I guess, industries, like basically it's all kind of that wastewater it has a lot of different stuff so how do you go about to actually find the things that you're looking for depends on what we are looking for but many of those studies that i just described there when we have done our local studies here in, in gothenburg and also in the different european countries and also what we aim to do now in africa we will have a focus on e coli and then we basically use basic microbiology we do mm -hmm. culture based we have specific media where we selectively and can culture E. coli from the wastewater samples. And that is actually a protocol that we also have developed. So we know now when we see bacterial colonies on our agar surfaces and pick those that we think are E. coli, we can now see that 99.5% or something of the cases, it is indeed E. coli when we then verify it with other techniques. So that is how we do. And now we would like to develop it further, as I mentioned, because uh, we have focused very much on E. coli so far. Now we would also like to look at other bacterial species. Another thing that one can do that we also have done a little bit on is to not culture anything, to not isolate the bacteria first, but instead isolate the total amount of DNA from the wastewater samples, and then specifically look at the resistance genes, the, ant the antibiotic resistance genes that are present in the sewage samples, both which resistance genes that are present and at which relative levels they are present. Mm -hmm. And you can also do comparisons between countries. But I would say that a drawback with that is that if, when you detect resistance genes by that uh, methodology, it's very challenging to uh, say in which bacteria they are sitting. And that is, can be quite important for the surveillance purposes to know, okay, we see this level of these resistance genes, but we don't know for sure which bacteria that are harboring them. Mm -hmm. It can be actually harmless environmental bacteria, but it can also be pathogens. Mm -hmm. then, it's, then it's much more relevant. I guess the, the data that you will get from such studies is not so much so as to guide the antibiotic treatment kind of right and then on in that context, but more about knowing what the potential risks of mobilization of genes could happen between different species or in the environment between non-pathogenic bacteria and potential pathogenic bacteria if they come in contact, right? Rather than saying, oh, this bacteria is this percentage likely to be resistant to this antibiotic that we find. But we know that culturing, sometimes it's messy. So it's nice that you are also able to look at it from this other angle. Absolutely. But I, I would like to highlight that uh, also, that when it comes to sort of the ambition or long-term goal to sort of be able to um, let this kind of surveillance data guide empirical treatments, then I would say that it's at least much more likely that a culture-based approach would be able to do that rather than what I should then call a gene-based approach when you solely look at the genes without doing any culturing or without knowing 
exactly which bacteria that are harboring the genes. Mm -hmm. If I understand correctly, when you do the culturing-based method, you then look at phenotypic resistance. So you look if that particular culture bacteria presents the resistant phenotype, so it can actually survive treatment. And when you look just at genes, then you cannot really correlate if even that gene is in a bacteria that could potentially infect humans, if that bacteria will actually be resistant or not. So you have a lot of layers of potential changes right here. Exactly. Exactly right. You have basically, you described there are two layers of uncertainties that you have with the gene-based approach. Mm -hmm. Very cool approach. And I think, I mean, we can say wastewaters and sewage are everywhere, more or less treated, obviously, uh, in different places of the world, but uh, we produce waste all the time. So trying to find a method that works across borders, it's very interesting. And I assume it would also be relatively cheap and easy to implement. What do you think? Yeah, that is sort of one of the arguments that um, we think that this would be a resource-efficient methodology, because one of the main reasons why surveillance is very limited or sometimes completely lacking in many parts of the world is, as I mentioned, due to limited resources. Because for, let's call it a standard surveillance of antibiotic resistance, it requires sort of sampling or taking samples from quite a few individuals to get to the reliable and informative surveillance data, it needs to be representative for a large number of people. But the difference here with the sewage sample is that in one single sample, you can have sort of bacteria from thousands and thousands of people. That's great. It's so cool to to learn what you're doing. And I and I think it's a great contribution to the area of surveillance that, as you say, is very important and is sometimes not as good as we would like it to be in many parts of the world. So I really hope that this project yields the results that you're looking for and somehow we can find a way to implement these kind of techniques. Uh, moving a bit from your work into your vision and your experience in the bigger area of your field of work, how have you seen the evolution of this area in the recent years? I would say that during recent years, quite a lot has happened in the field of sewage surveillance or sewage epidemiology, as it's often referred to actually nowadays, although not always directly related to AMR necessarily. Because sewage epidemiology is a concept of survey parameters related to human health via analysis of sewage. That mm-hmm. is sewage epidemiology. This has, for example, been used to map uh, the use of illicit drugs and has for several years been a component of the global polio eradication initiative. Mm-hmm. Uh, important uh, component there. And now, lately, the monitoring of the new coronavirus in sewage samples during the ongoing pandemic mm-hmm. has indeed, I would say, increased the awareness of sewage epidemiology. It has gained increased appreciation as a powerful tool. So I think that has also actually been important also for the AMR field, just to raise this awareness of that this could be a powerful tool that we now also try to apply to the AMR field mm-hmm. or antibiotic resistance field. Why do you think that maybe hasn't happened before? Do you think that maybe was not a l- awareness that these things could correlate well enough to actually be used as a tool? 
First of all, I think you are right since those studies have not been in place until quite recently. So I think that is a major reason. And we are not as close to uh, implementation, I would say, as we have seen sort of in the corona field, where you basically, the main purpose there for the corona surveillance is to follow the peaks during the pandemic. Whereas in the case of the antibiotic resistance, we have the long-term goal, as I said, to let this guide empirical treatments. That is something else, I would say, mm-hmm. that takes more evaluation work and so on. And another huge difference is also that the field of antibiotic resistance is so much more complex. Mm-hmm. The coronavirus, it's one factor, basically. Mm-hmm. You need to measure, measure the, the new coronavirus, of, uh, maybe variants of it have done lately. But in antibiotic resistance, you have several different bacteria that plays a role. You have several different types of antibiotics that the bacteria can be resistant to. So the matrix there is so much larger, adds to the complexity. I think those are major reasons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and maybe we have failed a bit ourselves. Some self-critique that we have not been able to uh, increase awareness from the AMR field. I mean, it's a a good point that we have to realize that we have the power to do something if we really believe something might work and drive the conversation and looking in this angle to the future is there something that you find it's missing from your area of work or are there any wishes wish lists that you have for the future in this area what would you like to see happening i don't know if there is a specific type of research that is missing But to be very general, I would say again that surveillance needs to be improved in many parts of the world. Since surveillance is the basis for guiding not only empirical treatments, but also guiding interventions and also evaluate those interventions. So surveillance data can be looked upon, I would say, as a roadmap when managing antibiotic resistance. And without representative surveillance data, there is a risk that actions are taken more or less blindfolded. Mm-hmm. So I think surveillance in general is very important and it needs to be improved, uh, I say it once again, in many parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And I have other wishes as well that are related to this. And I would say that more money should be spent on improving sanitation services, wastewater treatment and access to clean water in large parts of the world as well. That would also actually make it easier to do sewage surveillance. That's good. but More importantly, I would say that it's um, probably the most important thing we can do to improve human health globally. Mm -hmm. It has many, many aspects to it, and it will only help in one small area. Like it could be a section of the AMR efforts, but it would actually improve the quality of life across many different potential diseases, potentially low quality of life. And yeah, that, that is very, very true. And if you allow me to go into a little bit more scientific details, yeah, I, sure. I would also like actually to mention something that I relatively often see in the field of environmental surveillance. And that is that the objective behind the surveillance is not clearly stated. It's often not clearly stated. Mm-hmm. And be clear about the objective is very important, not least since different Antibiotic resistance markers have very different value for different surveillance objectives. 
-hmm. What I mean is what to measure will be dependent on the objective. It matters if your objective is to assess risks for transmission, for example, or if it is to assess risks for resistance evolution. Mm -hmm. Then different resistance markers will have different value for, for those purposes. So um, that is a wish as well for mm -hmm. the future when it comes to our area of uh, science. Yeah, I guess to your last point there is um, sometimes I feel like, and I also speak for myself that I come from outside of the area of environmental surveillance or environmental AMR, feels like sometimes it could just be about going into the environment and then measuring everything you can, kind of like take this sample and let's see what is out there, which is not so much hypothesis driven or as you say, in objective driven, which is we want to get to this objective, we want to get data to assess this particular thing, this particular risk, then therefore we have to look at these particular factors or markers or whatever is on the other end of it, right? Rather than just like, okay, let's try to see what is there and then maybe see what it correlates with what. And But I feel like when it comes to to things as big as, you know, an environment, or I also have seen this kind of approach to doing in ecology where you go out there and you measure anything, everything you can, and then you try to see what what is there and trying to think about what could be the reasons for the things being there rather than being the other way around. What do we want to see? What is the objective of this? And then set up what is it that you're going to look for at the beginning. So, so yeah, I guess a more directed approach, more goals-oriented approach to looking into the environmental uh, surveillance. It's, it's good. I think it's just the, the, I feel like the field is developing to actually know mm. what is it that we need to look for. Right exactly. at the beginning, it was a bit like, is this even relevant? That's what I have the feeling of when I came into the area of AMR. It's like, is this relevant? How is it relevant? And then the question comes like, what do we have to see to see if it's relevant? Right. And especially also, I would say, if resources are limited, then it's even more important to be very clear about the objective and then focus on those markers that are most important for that objective. Yeah, so you don't so, waste resources. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> the area of environmental surveillance and the role of environment in AMR is something that sometimes gets thrown around and maybe even uses a password or just put out there because it's, you know, hype at the moment to put everything together and this one health aspect of AMR. Uh, I would like to ask you in your experience and with the years you've been working here, is there something, some concept, some idea that is hard for people to understand when it comes to your field and to your work? I have to say that when it comes to these then, that I call them the environmental dimensions of antibiotic resistance, I would say that it's still about increasing the awareness in general, since there are still many that are quite unfamiliar to the field as a whole. Mm -hmm. And I can just, I need then to repeat myself that and among those that are familiar to some extent, it is not uncommon that they are having problems to separate between the different roles of the environment, in particular then the, the role that the environment can have for the transmission of already resistant bacteria and the role that the environment can have for the evolution and development of new resistant bacteria, including mm -hmm. the development of new resistant pathogens, since we know that there are a great there is a, there is a great diversity of antibiotic resistance genes 
out in the environment. Much greater diversity than what we have encountered in pathogens. And we also know that um, in some cases, we know that more or less identical resistance genes have been found in pathogens and in uh, environmental bacteria. There is clearly a movement of resistance genes from the environment to our pathogens. Mm -hmm. And there is also where the environment can play in probably a very important role. Mm -hmm. So I guess what you would wish for or, or something, and, and I agree with you from the point of communication as well, is that people don't see environment and AMR as a one big pile where everything is related, but better that the environment it's actually a place where different things can happen, be it transmission, be it evolution and emergence, be it a marker for what's happening in the clinics. All those things are in the same vessel, but they are different things and should be understood differently, right? Right. Yeah, that's that's, that's good. I, I, I also had that thought as I was reading about this is like when we talk about the environment it's not the same talking about this aspect of it or this other aspect of it and then of course trying to find the relationships between it and being and all the other vessels of AMR as I call it could, could be you know the hospital or it could be the community or it could be a farm or the meat production plant all those things are vessels where different things are happening and also many things might be happening in the same vessel. And it's, it's really complex, but it's so, so, so interesting, I would say. Yeah, you, you summarized it very well there, I would say. <laughs> Thank you. Unfortunately, we're running out of time and uh, leading to the end of this interview. But I would like to open this um, audio stage for you to tell us anything in particular that you would like to bring up awareness uh, to our audience uh, that maybe reiterate something from the interview or something completely new the floor is yours i can always take the chance to reiterate then <laughs> and that is you said it and i said it here that antibiotic resistance is a complex problem influenced by many factors that all needs to be taken into account in order to manage and mitigate this global problem that we have. Not least, it needs to be acknowledged and appreciated that the three one health sectors, humans, animals, and the environment, they are interconnected and can all influence uh, what we eventually encounter in our clinics. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there is a big barrier for people, or not a big barrier, but the complexity it really limits our capability to make integrated decisions and integrated movement and changes in, in this area. I feel like it's so hard. It's paralysis by analysis. There is so much there that somehow we are limiting ourselves because of the complexity of the, of the issue. Because you talk about animals and environment and the environment have different roles and then it's, it's so big. How do we overcome this complexity? We cannot sort of ignore it, I would say. We cannot ignore the complexity because it's there. But that doesn't stop us from doing... So the main thing is, of course, it's good to have integrated approaches. So that, that If it's about transmission, for example, that you study the same thing in the three sectors, for example. That's one thing. But overall, I would say that it's most important that... Um, it's, again, it's that it's appreciated. So we're not just 100% focus on one sector, but one need to do things, not necessarily always 
well integrated, but one needs to do things in all the three sectors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I completely agree with you that we can have a, a bit of everything, things that are transsectorial, things that are within sectors, things that, yeah. but not really just forgetting and leaving one one leg behind kind of uh, speak. Oh. It was great. Thank you so much, Carl, for being with us. I hope that uh, we get to visit Gothenburg at some point so we can <laughs> learn more about, about your facilities, about the people working with you as well, since we are so close in relative speaking terms, you know, with the big world that we live in. We are really close. So I hope that we can hang out sometime soon and keep sharing and keep learning from each other as well. Absolutely. We're still reaching the end of the pandemic here. So then exactly. we hope we can meet in person. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I hope you have a lovely, lovely day. Thank you. Thank you. Same to you. Thank you very much. Welcome back, dear listeners. Um, first of all, just a disclaimer for this May episode. Uh, both Jenny and I are either going through COVID right now or recovering from COVID that happened over Easter break. So we might be a little bit slower than usual. You might feel that there is more cuts in this edit. It might be because we had to stop to cough, our voices fail, etc. etc. So just a heads up that we might not be at our best, best this episode, but we are um, thriving to bring you the best experience, even though the circumstances. <laughs> we'll let you get guess who who currently has it who's recovering and uh have fun with that it's the amr studio <laughs> quiz for this yes. month <laughs> jenny um what did you think about our talk with carl frederick i i personally really enjoy it but i'm curious about what you thought about this very important topic yeah i, re- I really like this interview i i've known about the care center in gothenburg for a while i mean it's um it's been around a, lot, a large part of my phd and with the close interaction i mean it's it's like you said geographically close i've talked to their students at conferences and meetings and everything but uh for a large number of different circumstances several times i have never actually been able to meet anyone any of the the pis or researchers that are currently there only students so it's really nice to get to hear from somebody who I've, i've heard his name and everything before and this work with sewage and wastewater we actually have some coworkers that are at my lab that do a little bit similar work. So it's just nice to hear it from also from a slightly different standpoint. They don't do the same kind of surveillance work. So it was just really interesting to kind of hear this balance and this new stuff. In general, I think their work is very useful. Uh, so I didn't really know that sewage monitoring was so established before COVID. I've only heard about it in association with COVID and a little bit in like this monitoring like illicit drugs and stuff like that. I've heard these kind of things, but I'd never really thought about it as a form of epidemiology. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like this this side note for me, but uh, it was nice to be reminded of the value of this kind of work and what it could potentially do, what it could mean for us. Yeah, definitely. To your comment about the care center, I, I have to say that the Gothenburg has been known for a really long time to do a lot of work in environmental aspects of AMR or the environmental dimensions of AMR, as uh, Carl Frederick was putting it. And at the care center, they're doing a lot of work in the, these different aspects. So I like that. Carl Frederick, he focused on his area being the principal investigator in this surveillance aspect, but he works day in and day out with people that also work in these other aspects of how the environment gets to be involved in AMR, be it uh, transmission or evolution as well. I think for me, a key thing of going through this interview and something that I'm taking home and I'm I'm internalizing and I will have it with me when I talk with people about this is, yeah, 
I am guilty as charged of thinking of the environment in AMR as a one thing, you know, like, and it's, yeah, me too. <laughs> it was very nice to hear a detailed and concise explanation. Yeah, the environment is important, but it's important for different reasons. And we have to study this separately and we have to see how these different things uh play a role in the in the bigger picture right it's not the same thing mm -hmm. uh, i have to talk about evolution and emergence and transmission possible transmission between different strains and pathogens and and it's really it's really interesting yeah i definitely it struck a chord with me as well because i'm also guilty of that of muddling all these things together and just being like oh the environment blah blah blah, blah, blah. and then it's like no no th these are each important aspects in and of themselves and you don't like don't just throw them all together in a big mishmash but also, something struck me when you and Dr. Flack were talking about the sewage monitoring and in the work that they're looking to see in low resource settings, if this can be as applicable. When thinking about it, I mean, it, of course, it's work that needs to be done and it's it sounds very valuable and it looks like that from how they've been doing so far that it's it can be equally beneficial there. But it sounds like it must be much more difficult to do this kind of work. I mean, I'm comparing to where we live here. We have a very advanced infrastructure when it comes to especially human waste like sewage treatment or not not just treatment but collection like everything is really kind of going to a plant pretty much there's maybe some exceptions but it's not many while i'm thinking in a lot of resource poor settings where it's very important to know this sort of information i'm assuming and this might be my false assumption but that not as much sewage is successfully collected mm -hmm. and it's interesting if maybe that would affect the results in some way of these kinds of things if you can get as a as much of a representative sample mm -hmm. or if there's a way of uh, sampling sewage in a more informal setting like i'm assuming again in this study i'm assuming that in our places like sweden they maybe collect at the sewage treatment plant like upstream of any treatment but i'm wondering what the equivalent would be in a more resource poor setting that maybe doesn't have the same advanced infrastructure if it's more informal more kind of maybe a larger number of sampling sites or how you would do it i mean i'm just wondering what the mm -hmm. how they kind of handle this sort of difference in the system but as i mean i'm sure they're thinking about it as well it's just, just where my mind went was how do you how do you manage those differences yeah i guess because the power of what what they are presenting and and then using sewage you basically get a very large representation of what's happening you know, in the different individuals. So instead of having to take samples from individuals, you basically sample the wastewater and you have their, the waste of a lot of people. And that's the strength of it. It's like it's, it's yeah. scale up, right? And in settings where you might not have a place where you collect as much waste that represents as many people, then how do you overcome that difficulty, right? I, I assume that what they do is actually get enough places that gets an equally representative amount of individuals, I, I would assume. But I guess we will have to check whenever those new studies come out and, and see how how much of similarity or differences there mm -hmm. is in the way that they can analyze this sewage yeah. for surveillance. Or maybe it's sufficient to take it from whatever form of, even if not all sewage is collected in the same in the same rigorous way. I mean, maybe it's enough that what is collected to be a representative sample. It's still obviously a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Overall, I am very happy that we were able to talk to someone that does something very particular and in an area that we don't get to talk so much or so often. Yeah. You know, we focus a lot in the clinics and what's happening also perhaps with animals, veterinary medicine, but there is uh, an, another aspect there with the environment and understand why 
one health it's important i think carl frederick did a very nice work presenting to us like, why do we need to have this aspect and this viewpoint of it and then even though there is a complexity in it there is ways to also simplify and see and look at different things in these different sectors of the one health system right that was actually another thing that i remember from the interview that stuck out a bit was this embracing the complexity like don't don't be afraid of the complexity of the problem don't kind of undervalue it. it it's just like well yeah it's very complex but that means we have to like face it head on and just like delve into this complexity you know and i mean i always talk about that with other people with amr that it's it's such a complex issue there's so many aspects so many levels and then it's like when you go into even the compartmentalized issues mm-hmm. even those are complicated and have levels and nuances and everything so for sure i mean and i think you are as well the kind of people that enjoy these levels of complexity and analysis and how everything ties in with everything mm-hmm. else and it's it makes me like happy to i mean it's it's so complicated so difficult but it also makes me like happy to think about all these little threads going between everything <laughs> I, I love the uh, you know comprehensive maps like like mind maps and yes. the charts you know like i remember like I, in my mind it's just like arrows flowing everywhere exactly exactly everything. like i i actually did one of those for trying to bring together all my papers on my thesis so I thought, okay, what are the concepts in each one of these papers and how I can find relationship between them? So like my thesis is the complex area and then my papers are the individual things I'm looking, but I really still want to see how does everything relate to each other and find these connections. And yeah, AMR is it's, uh, an area where a lot of this is happening, obviously. Yeah, I, I think with that, uh, we actually have some news that's extra fitting with this interview. Actually, yeah, I would say so. And uh, some more stuff as well. So I think we should go ahead and jump straight into that. Yeah, I continue talking about some environmental things and some animal things and in this One Health concept. Hey everyone, welcome to the news for this month. So like we mentioned, we have two more kind of environmental articles to talk about this month. And I wanted to go ahead and jump in and start with one called Drinking Water Chlorination Has Minor Effects on the Intestinal Flora and Resistomes of Bangladeshi Children. It's in Nature Microbiology, and unfortunately it's not open, so we'll try to discuss it thoroughly, but there is some popular publications about it. It was published on the 14th of April, 2022. But yeah, as the title says pretty clearly, what they were looking at was the effect of drinking water chlorination, looking at urban settings in Bangladesh, mainly Dhaka, What they tried to look at was, okay, these children, young children, after starting to drink water that had been chlorinated, they wanted to see how their microbiomes looked and do some studies from there. This was kind of taken from a larger study where they were looking at if these children, for example, developed diarrheal illness, uh, took antibiotics over time. And the interest behind this study is chlorinating water can, of course, prevent diarrheal disease or waterborne illness because it maybe removes and cleans out some of the pathogens from the water in some of these areas where water has traditionally been a situation where it's still a huge issue. And we still see, especially young children, being affected by a heavy burden of disease because of uh, a lack of access to clean drinking water. So basically what they did, or what they're studying here, is after automated water chlorination of shared taps was initiated in certain areas, they wanted to see how the children's microbiomes developed over time. In general, I think what they found is quite interesting. So just to clarify a few things, when they're looking at microbiomes, you're not cultivating anything. They're basically just taking stool samples from children, taking 
all the DNA they can and then analyzing just the DNA. So we're not looking at things that are growing. We're not like cultivating anything. We're not sampling specific bacteria. We're looking at like the whole and trying to determine at a more broad scale, okay, what kind of bacterial taxa, like what groups of bacteria are prevalent and to what what fraction of the bacteria are this and that and comparing it to what we consider to be a healthy microbiome. And within that data, it's good to mention that they can also look at the prevalence of resistant genes, which is a yes. byproduct of something that they were also thinking in the study. And is that if we chlorinate the water and this results in less infection burden in the kids, we might also be able to reduce antibiotic use in general, which we know it's a selective pressure for accumulation of resistance. So they can also look into the residual and prevalence of these antibiotic-resistant genes in the biome of these children as well. Yeah, and it's worth, I mean, emphasizing, I, I think they mentioned that in this setting, their children are often taking five times the amount of antibiotics with children in a more high-resource setting. So it, there's definitely a high level of antibiotic use in these settings to deal with the higher burden of infections. So it makes sense that, of course, there is also selection for resistance in these settings as well. But the interesting things that they found in this study is while there maybe was a very small effect of chlorination, it was very small. Mm -hmm. It was not really anything that can be considered to be causing a large effect, I'd say. They'd have to, of course, do more work to see over time how these things change. And they looked at three different age categories that kind of correlate to different stages of development of the human microbiome. So at the youngest, I think it was 6 to 14 months, 15 to 30 months, and 31 months, up to 61 months. Because these kind of represent different stages as the human microbiome develops over these young years to reach a relatively adult microbiome level uh, around, I think, 3 to 5 years of age. What they saw was the lower age group and the higher age group, they really didn't see any effect from the treatment on diversity of the microbiome. What they did see is a little small tiny effect between 15 and 30 months in this middle age group. All in all, I'd say that this seems to be less of an effect than what you would think considering chlorinated water. And it's also worth mentioning, I mean, the chlorination of water does not mean that your body is getting a significant amount of chlorination from drinking the water. It's more that the water itself maybe isn't carrying other things. So just throwing that in there right now. Something that I thought was interesting is that they still, both in the control and the treatment patients, that they often carried pathogens like ETEC and Campylobacter and Salmonella species. And to us, like more people were carrying these than actually were saying that they were currently sick or had been sick recently, which kind of brings in this idea of if you're not getting sick from a pathogen, it's because you weren't exposed or maybe your, your microbiome is more healthy and can manage the exposure and not cause a true infection with symptoms. Um, it's kind of this idea of just ha having the bacteria in your body. Does that mean you are infected? Does that mean you are sick? Or does that just mean they're there? <laughs> but when it came to the antibiotic resistance genes, they also kind of found something interesting that there were actually high level of antibiotic resistance genes found in the treatment group. So children that had been drinking chlorinated water which maybe was not what they expected. However, I, I kind of wasn't surprised. And with the one thing that they mentioned that could be the cause is that there's, you're selecting for uh, Enterobacteriaceae, so the same class of bacteria that E. coli belong in, 
where there can be a lot of antibiotic resistance genes, there are more of those. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad. I mean, a lot of E. coli are very good for us. They're part of our, our gut flora, our commensal gut flora that are good for us and help us. But it is interesting that there maybe also are more resistance genes carried than by increasing this kind of healthy gut flora in some way. However, I also think, and this is me personally, this isn't the paper, it also feels a little bit naive to think that there would be a big reduction in antibiotic resistance genes over a short period of time with something like chlorinated water. It feels like a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And again, reducing the use of antibiotics is always a good thing if you don't need to take them, but also from a reducing resistance perspective. I mean, if you reduce the use of antibiotics, you also reduce the production of antibiotics unnecessarily. Like, there's so many steps that take a long time to turn up, mm-hmm. you know? So I think it's a little bit hard to say, like, well, we didn't see a reduction in antibiotics. The genes we actually trying to increase. It's like, okay, well, I'm not surprised. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> you know? I agree with you. This is not a criticism of the paper itself. I think it, they have to look into it and they have to present the results, obviously, because that's what they got. But it is, I don't think it's as significant as just throwing out there the sentence there were more antibiotic-resistant genes. That doesn't really, what, what is the what is really the reason behind it and what is yeah. it the effect that it will have, right? And I think, mm-hmm. as you're saying, if the goal with this coordination is to create a situation where healthier microbiomes can be developing these children and then, therefore, there's less infections and then less antibiotic use, those effects will take time to show an overall cumulative effect on how much resistance there is both individuals and also in the community and the population. And what it's just telling you is that because there is a slight difference in the composition of the bacteria that is found in the children that have been exposed to chlorinated water for at least six months to a year, there is a change. And that change also changes the amount of resistant genes that are available just because the bacteria are different, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that the kids are going to suffer from more resistant infections or anything of the like. It's just that, you know, this is the situation. This is the snapshot we're taking right now. This is what we see. And I think they do a really good job also in the article to present what the limitations of the study is. Mm -hmm. I think the study is a very good base study to set up the the stage of what's happening, what is the potential effects of this chlorination. But I think as they mentioned, that, you know, longitudinal studies, studies where you are following the same people before exposure to the chlorinated water, after a year, more years in the future, it's important. And also from being children to being adults, what kind of changes there is in the microbiome? Are there more stable microbiomes? Are they, can we get data in the amount, in the number of infections that they suffer, are they getting more resilient microbiomes through this infection, which is overall the goal of, of having clean water, right? Um, mm-hmm. Carl Freddy Flack also mentioned it, like one of the best things we can do overall is to provide clean water all across the world, right? And, yeah. and chlorination is a established way of cleaning water. Yeah. I might have not stated it as clearly as I want to here, and I think they state it quite briefly in the paper as well. Just looking at these patients and their health effects, there were fewer kids that had been sick recently. There, it was longer times that they had had antibiotics, or like they had not as many had had antibiotics in the recent past. And that alone, I think, is enough to kind of follow through the system, especially when they don't find anything that suggests a strong impact on the microbiome in a negative way of the chlorination itself. It's more a matter of yes, we should continue these long-term studies to see what the effects are, but it seems to be very positive on the short term. Mm-hmm. 
we actually talked about this before. I, I think we both lived in places that have had chlorinated water before. I, I'm not entirely sure that they had it in the part of the U.S. I grew up in, but I know there are parts of the U.S. where they chlorinate water. Yeah, I mean, after I read this article, I went in to, you know, just do some searching to... Because I know that in Spain, I would say the majority of the places have chlorinated water. Everything that comes out of the tap that you use at home is chlorinated water. And actually, the levels of chlorination, how the chlorination is done is different depending on the region because the base water that they use for the tap water is different. And that's why it's commonly know throughout Spain that some areas of Spain have better tasting water in the tap yeah. than others but it's equally safe to drink and it's because there is chlorination in it um, so when I saw this it's like yeah to me chlorination as a way to provide clean water for consumption it's an it's the baseline it's a normal thing but I never really thought about how could potentially chlorination affect the development of the gut microbiota? And that's like a totally valid question, right? And if you want to implement yeah, in places like India, where you have so many people, you want to be sure that you are providing a treatment that doesn't negatively impact the future health of the population, right? Yeah. So but I think that comes too from, I mean, I think chlorination, at least in the US, is a pretty historic, like it's been a while. And we definitely didn't have the same understanding of the microbiome back then as we do now. I don't think we considered it to the same degree. Yeah. There's something else that we mentioned before, while we were discussing this before we um, started recording that I wanted to bring up. And it's this, um, the very clear evidence that we don't have representative references of a microbiome across the globe. And Ava, I know, I know you, this struck you as well. So basically what they're doing here is they take out the DNA and they map it to like known references pretty much. In some cases, they can only map about 42% of the DNA, mm -hmm. 46, something like that. I mean, it was below 50% they could yeah. map to known references. And that's very low, mm -hmm. I would say, for these situations. And it's showing that, you know, we need more reference data in these areas. We need more work done about, okay, well, what, how does the microbiome look in these areas? What's the healthy microbiome? What's not... I mean, for the people that are not very familiar of how these like genomic studies are done, it's a bit like you have a book that is made with a lot of different languages, right? Like imagine you get a book and it's written in a lot of different languages and you are able to get words from that book and then you look for those words and then you recognize, oh, this is an English word. So this belongs to an English part of the book so to speak, right? And you do yeah. that with all the different words that you have. But then at some point you come up across a word that you cannot find in any language that you have in your reference language set, so to speak. So that comes from a language that you have never really studied or encountered before and it's not in the database. And this is what it seems to be happening in the low and middle income countries that, you know, the mm -hmm. reference set of languages that are there in the microbiomes, normally the composition of the microbiome is different than in high income countries, Western countries, which are the baseline that we're using to understand the microbiome. Um, that is a, a huge limitation because if you want to make assumptions and studies of how the microbiome changes with different actions and interventions that you're using, you need to know what's the baseline of, of the yeah. microbiomes of those people. So this paper, although not directly, really shows is another proof of the limitations that we have when we are trying to do these studies. Yeah, definitely. And it, it uh, emphasizes the importance of globalizing research, making it you know, relevant for everybody in a way. We really need to move our focus to places maybe where it's honestly more needed mm -hmm. as well. For sure. But I think we should actually... On that note, go to our next study. Mm -hmm. 
which is less of an article this time. Yeah, I, I think this was an, also an interesting thing to to bring up also because it's a different kind of publication in a sense. So yesterday, actually, the European Congress of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, ECMID, finished its 32nd Congress. It was in Lisbon. And these big conferences in, in many scientific areas also have press releases and they have science being presented at these congresses which might not yet have been published on a paper but their importance of the results is kind of high to bring it up to such a big arena I think there's thousands and thousands of people attending ECMIT every year so we're bringing you a press release from this European Congress of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases from this year uh, with the title, Danish study finds superbug clostridius difficile can jump between pigs and humans, providing evidence of zoonotic spread. And it was under embargo until this past Saturday, 23rd of April. So now it's available. We will leave the links as well. You can read uh, both the press release and the original abstract and poster at the conference. And we thought this was interesting to bring up because... We need more evidence that this is actually happening, right? We talk a lot about, well, is there really a role of uh, the environment, as we were talking before, or uh, the animals' environments, and does that actually play a role into human health and what we encounter in the clinics? Is there a reason for us to really put efforts into managing antibiotic use in animal husbandry? We don't have so many of these examples of things moving yeah. between different uh, sectors of this one health aspect, right? And yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to, to prove. It's a very hard thing to prove. I mean, it's logical. You know, everybody would say, yeah, obviously yeah. the farmers are in contact with the animals. What is it to prevent that, you know, these bacteria move between things? But we have to see it, right? We have to prove yeah, it. Yeah, we, right? can, we can assume. But yeah having solid data is much more exactly i mean we have there are examples of this happening before for for example we know that cholestine resistant genes have been moving from farms into the farmers and therefore into the community and and the clinics as well the problem is for almost all of these and including this study now sorry but i'm throwing this out early we do not know the direction yeah and i hate to say this we cannot for sure say that it went from the farm to the human we can say that it has crossed Mm -hmm. between farming human health but we cannot say that it has for sure gone in one direction or the other they do mention this here as well that is something that you know it needs more studies to know like more phylogenetic and evolutionary studies of the particular bacteria that are found in Mm -hmm. both humans and and animals and personally i mean i can just throw out my personal opinion Obviously, it's spreading between both in both directions. It's like, yes. <laughs> it can go both ways. Is my solution. I agree with you. I mean, we can have, um, you know, uh, we can have indications of where something might mm-hmm. be being selected for. And therefore, then if you have a strong indication that a particular resistance is evolving and emerging in a particular sector, and then you find it in another sector, then you can think, oh, there is a strong evidence that the movement has been from sector A to sector B and not the other way around. But it's not really hard proof. It's just a theory or like an idea behind it, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of detailed studies needed to be done for this. But in this article, they're looking into C. difficile because it's a bacterium that it's important in human health, in particular 
people with immune system problems and also people that have undergone long treatments with antibiotics as well for other infectious diseases. And it seems like there's also new types of C. difficile that seems to be more virulent and also cause disease in healthy and people that have good immune systems as well. So Mm -hmm. it seems like there is an emergence of these subtypes that seem to make people sick more. So they were interested into looking, is there a movement of this bacterium and therefore can be considered a zoonosis between farm animals and humans. And Denmark is a good place to do this because they have a huge industry on pig meat production. There's a lot of pig farms. And for this particular study, they looked into both piglets, sows, which are the piglets' moms, basically, and also pigs at the moment of being slaughtered and getting into the other part of the meat production system. And what they found is that there was about C. difficile in about 10% of the samples of the animals that they looked into. And they found that it was more common to find these uh, bacteria in piglets and so than the slaughter pigs, so older pigs. And this seems to be because younger pigs have a microbiota composition that is more susceptible to colonization. So if there is a movement of these bacteria into the animals, then it's easier to be found in the piglets that are more sensitive to be colonized by bacteria that are moving around, whereas maybe older pigs and uh, pigs that have a more established microbiome, they are more resistant to this colonization. I just wanted to throw in that actually fits very well with the previous article that we had talking about children's microbiomes. Exactly. All together. <laughs> it's the same, the same case also for piglets and yes. for all, all pigs. They also look into the, not only if C. difficile was there, but also the resistant genes that this C. difficile samples were carrying and from 54 of the positive C. difficile samples in the pigs they found 38 isolates that have at least one resistant genes but overall they found up to seven classes of different antibiotics with resistant genes for them including macrolides, beta-lactams, aminoglycosides and vancomycin as well. What they are mentioning here uh, that we have in this press release a couple of statements from the lead investigator in this case. She mentions that it's of particular concern that a large reservoir of genes conferring resistance to aminoglycosides, a class of antibiotics to which C. difficile is intrinsically resistant, which means that C. difficile can play a role in spreading these resistant genes to other susceptible species because they don't need to have genes for that particular resistance yeah. because they are intrinsically resistant to it. So it means that they are a, a player in the transmission and evolution of these genes moving from places to places. So they can be a, what is called a reservoir. So they just sit there mm. and then they can be transferred to another potential bacteria. It seems relatively common for pigs to have C. difficile, but they have animal-associated C. difficile subtypes and human-associated C. difficile subtypes. And I think one of their biggest findings here is that many of the uh, human infections that they found were a type called ST11, which is an animal-associated strain. And some of those strains were very, very similar, in essence almost identical to, I think one even was fully identical, to a strain found in a pig. and. That's where we really find this evidence that, like, we're not talking about direction, but there is very likely spread yeah. in some direction. Exactly. It's, it's it's not common for things to be that identical. <laughs> Definitely um, not. I think it's a good, really good study looking at that sort. I mean, this, I think it's really useful to see this information of, like, and, like, they have to look at these large numbers of 
I mean, they did a lot of sampling. It's a lot of different samples to really compare and find these things of like, okay, this is very similar. Mm -hmm. We can kind of draw draw a thread here and say that this this is likely to be spread. Exactly, because something that is so close regionally because the patients that they took obviously is from Denmark as well and you have these peaks in Denmark so these things are close by the chances that two lineages of this same bacteria ended up looking the same being evolved into different compartments of of the of the population you know you have the humans and the animals is very very unlikely so that means that if you find the same thing in humans and you find the same thing in animals there must have been a transmission of some sort between them which proves that yeah these things move from animals Mm -hmm. to humans or humans to animals but it's a share and there is we have to have in account that there's gonna be selection pressures in the different sectors and then the spread can happen between them basically that's what this paper is bringing to our attention and I, I think it's also important to mention that they found these hypervirulent strains in the pigs as well. So the ones that can cause disease also in young, healthy people. So really kind of embracing this fact that there there is one thing that I thought, I mean, this is obviously a, a brief and a poster and an abstract. So this is not all the information. I'd like to know how transmission of antibiotic resistance genes to and from, I guess, C. diff works and how relevant this would be as a as a reservoir for antibiotic resistance genes. I, I don't feel like I know enough about that to say anything, right now, like whether it seems relevant or not. But uh, if I had the time, I would delve into a bit of uh, C. diff uh, bacterial genetics in gene transmission. Yeah, so see. basically understand like how what mechanisms are there for C. diff yeah. cell that carries a particular gene to end up that gene in on another bacteria yeah is it very likely does it happen often is it particularly easy for c diff to pick up resistance genes or to spread i'm like i do hope that they discuss a bit more of that in this uh paper whenever it's published mm-hmm. of the study so sure. obviously it's out of the scope it's too much for for a brief from a conference but it would be interesting to discuss further like the relevance of this reservoir Obviously, the presence of the resistance genes is of it in and of itself important, but then there's the added layer of, okay, but what happens with it? Well, yeah, what are the risks of it? Yeah. yeah. I thought it was interesting to bring another kind of publication of sorts, not a report, yeah. not a published article, but a press release from a conference. Yeah, not peer-reviewed, but it has been, I mean, going through a process of abstract selection and stuff like that, there is a level of review of the work. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it's it's important to distinguish it, though, from a peer-reviewed article. Yeah, and generally when people present these things and they even present a press release to the conference, it means that they are very close to getting published as yeah. well. And I mean, obviously, this is it's it's uh, it's kind of big news in the in the topic. It was all over Twitter as well. People were sharing it and saying, "Look at this! This is evidence. This is telling us these mm. things are happening." So. It's clear that we've all been screaming for more evidence. <laughs> yes, evidence, evidence, evidence. But with that, I think we're done for this uh, month of May. I thank you for bearing with us, with maybe our slower brains and slower voices and, you know, taking our breaks. And uh, we hope to be completely recovered for the next episode of June. Or maybe we'll get something else next time. Who knows? (laughs) Who knows? Who knows in this uh, day and time when everything is populating around the the people because everyone is out there again and and doing stuff. So we are exposed to a lot of more things than we've been in the past two years. I think I'm up, though. I've I've had everything the last six months. 
I hope that it's I'm your done. time now to be <laughs> healthy and, and good and focus on, on living and, and work. And work <laughs> yeah. I hope that you all that are listening to us keep safe and are healthy and thriving. And I hope to have you back with us uh, for the month of June. Bye. Yeah. Bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. <laughs>